Hello, I'm Sarah Avery of Sarah Avery Legal Practice. Welcome to today's episode of the Not Just a Lawyer podcast. Because of world events at the moment, I'm going to be talking to you about what the Australian law is in relation to treason. It's a word that seems really old fashioned, but it's cropped up in the news recently because of actions in the United States of America. So let's get into it. What does this mean? I'm very fortunate to be able to record this episode today on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'll be talking to you about what treason means under Australian law, and I'll be looking at the Commonwealth Criminal Code. In making this podcast, I'm relying very heavily upon a report by the Australian Law Reform Commission. The report is called Fighting Words, A Review of Sedition Laws in Australia, and it's ALRC report number 104. And I found it um, on the ALRC website, and you can also read the full text if you would like on Ostley. If you Google Fighting Words, A Review of Sedition Laws in Australia, you are almost certain to come up with it and be able to have a look at it for yourself. Now, this was tabled in December 2006. So it's a relatively old report, but it's still highly relevant. And this report goes through sedition law and treason law in Australia and gives a bit of context. For the purposes of today's podcast, I'm not going to go into what sedition means or the whole history of it in Australia. But what I can say, just so that you have some idea of what I'm talking about, is that sedition and treason are related concepts. And here's what the ALRC has to say about it. The law of sedition derives from the law of treason, which since feudal times has punished acts deemed to constitute a violation of a subject's allegiance to his or her lord or monarch. Sedition and treason are related conceptually because seditious words or conduct can stir up opposition to the established authority. For this reason, it has been said that sedition frequency, sorry, frequently precedes treason by a short interval. So that really begs the question, though, what does the word sedition actually mean? Well, the ALRC is really helpful. They say, the classic definition of seditious intention is found in Sir James Fitzjames Stevens' Digest of the Criminal Law, published in 1887. A seditious intention is an intention to bring into hatred or contempt or to excite disaffection against the person of Her Majesty, her heirs or successors, or the government and constitution of the United Kingdom, as by law established, or either House of Parliament, or the administration of justice, or to excite Her Majesty's subjects to attempt, otherwise than by lawful means, the alteration of any matter in church or state by law established, or to incite any person to commit any crime in disturbance of the peace, or to raise discontent or disaffection amongst Her Majesty's subjects, or to promote feelings of ill will or hostility between different classes of such subjects. 
So that's pretty broad and also kind of vague. And the ALRC, that is the Australian Law Reform Commission, thought so too. When they wrote their report, they thought that the legal elements of sedition offences have, in their words, traditionally been ill-defined. So basically, if I could pop it into a nutshell, and bearing in mind that sedition could probably have its own podcast, sedition is usually saying things to stir up ill feelings and ill will uh, towards a monarch or a government, and then treason is often actually acting upon that ill will to try and overthrow. But we will talk more about what treason actually means in Australian law. And what I'll be talking about today is the more modern crime of treason, which has been in force as a result of Australia's response and concern about terrorism that became a lot more prominent after the attacks in the United States and in Indonesia and various other places during the early and mid-2000s. So there is a history of prosecution for offences of sedition um, in Australia, particularly in earlier colonial times, but that will be beyond the scope of what I'm able to talk about today. What I can say briefly about sedition before I move on to talking about the crime of treason is that as a result of the Australian Law Reform Commission's report, the term sedition was actually removed from our legislation and instead it's replaced by more descriptive phrases, things like advocating terrorism or inciting terrorist acts. So let's talk about treason. Chapter 5, the security of the Commonwealth, is where we will find the offence of treason and things similar to it in the Commonwealth Criminal Code. So Section 80 talks about treason, urging violence and advocating terrorism or genocide. And you can already see from that heading that modern treason law is very much rooted in dealing with terrorism and like offences. So it's already got a different context to how treason was seen in the past, which was more about the overthrow of a monarch. Today, it's very much directed towards dealing with terrorism. So here we are, 80.1, treason. A person commits an offence if the person A causes the death of the sovereign, the heir apparent of the sovereign, the consort of the sovereign, the governor general or the prime minister, or B causes harm to the sovereign, the governor general or the prime minister, resulting in the death of the sovereign, the governor general or the prime minister, or C, causes harm to the sovereign, the governor-general or the prime minister, or imprisons or restrains the sovereign, the governor-general or the prime minister, or D, levies war or does any act preparatory to levying war against the Commonwealth, or G, and I know, I know that we're missing some letters there, instigates a person who is not an Australian citizen 
to make an armed invasion of the Commonwealth or a territory of the Commonwealth, and the penalty for that is imprisonment for life. Subsection 2 further says, a person commits an offence if the person receives or assists another person who, to his or her knowledge, has committed an offence against this subdivision with the intention of allowing him or her to escape punishment or apprehension, or B, knowing that another person intends to commit an offence against this subdivision, does not inform a constable of it within a reasonable time or use other reasonable endeavours to prevent the commission of the offence. And the penalty for that, that sort of being a helper or not telling a constable about someone's intention to do this, that penalty is also imprisonment for life. And a constable means a member or special member of the Australian Federal Police or a member of the police force or police service of a state or territory. So basically any police officer. There's some other offences relating to treason. 80.1 A treason, assisting an enemy to engage in armed conflict. A person commits an offence if a party, and then in brackets the enemy, is engaged in armed conflict involving the Commonwealth or the Australian Defence Force, and B, the enemy is declared in a proclamation made under section 80.1 AB, and C, the person engages in conduct, and D, the person intends that the conduct will materially assist the enemy to engage in armed conflict involving the Commonwealth or the Australian Defence Force, and E, the conduct materially assists the enemy to engage in armed conflict involving the Commonwealth or the Australian Defence Force, and F, at the time the person engages in the conduct, number one, the person knows that the person is an Australian citizen or a resident of Australia, or number two, the person knows that the person has voluntarily put himself or herself under the protection of the Commonwealth. Or, number three, the person is a body corporate incorporated by or under a law of the Commonwealth or of a state or territory. And the penalty for that is imprisonment for life. Now, there's a defence to this for acts done in good faith. So, if... You assist an enemy to engage in armed conflict, but you've done all of the constituent parts of the conduct in good faith. You're actually not trying to help the enemy. There's perhaps a good reason that you have done this, and that is a defence. But you'll see throughout this offence anyway, there are a number of things that need to be in place before the offence is actually committed. So there needs to be a proclamation that someone is actually an enemy. A person needs to engage in actual conduct. They need the intention that their conduct will materially assist the enemy to engage in armed conflict. So there needs to be an armed conflict going on involving the Commonwealth or the Australian Defence Force. And the conduct needs to materially assist the enemy to engage in armed conflict. So there are a lot of things that someone who opposes certain action of the Commonwealth um, might do that have no way of falling under this offence of treason. It's very, very specific. So it's not designed to stop people from expressing opinions or generally being in opposition 
to whoever's in government at the time, there are really specific things that you actually need to do to break that law. So you might be wondering how this relates or can be compared to events occurring in the United States. And by that, I'm talking about people entering the Capitol building while armed, breaching the building, attempting to hunt for politicians to try and, I guess, persuade them, if that's not too polite a word for what was happening, um, to their particular viewpoint and to try and enforce, enforce certain actions, which I understand the goal to have been stopping certification, which is just a formality um, of the results of the presidential election. And the short answer is it really doesn't translate to the Australian context because we have such a different type of government. But you will see... For example, there is a heavy focus at the start of the treason offence on particular people or people holding particular offices um, and if those people are attacked, then that is an offence of treason. So we're talking about our sovereign and the heir apparent of the sovereign so that would be Queen Elizabeth II and whoever is the current heir apparent, which I think that's Prince Charles, the consort of the sovereign, Prince Philip, the governor general or the prime minister. So there are particular offices which are protected under the treason law. I suppose if you wanted to analogise, you might be thinking that in the United States, very similar Officers might be the president and the first lady, perhaps the vice president um, and people like that. But really, to delve into that and what would constitute treason in the United States, we'd really have to look at US law. Hopefully, because it's a word that you are hearing a lot more of at the moment, you found this interesting. As I say, we're really different to the United States. We are very fortunate to have, at the moment, at the very least, a stable system of government where the legitimacy of our elections is something that rather than being a hot topic, we tend to take for granted. We are very lucky in that we don't perceive a high level of corruption within our electoral system. And one of the chief reasons for that is likely, in my opinion, to be the fact that we do have our Australian Electoral Commission, which is a body that is typically associated with integrity and impartiality, ensuring that we do have free and fair elections. There may be also some relationship to our compulsory voting requirement, but as someone who has abandoned their political science studies quite a while ago, I probably can't comment too much on that. What I will say is that I think we're extremely lucky that in Australia, the issue of treason is something that rarely comes up as an issue that we need to think about in our day-to-day -day lives. And I'd like to simply express my gratitude for that.
So that is today's episode of the Not Just a Lawyer podcast. Because it's 2021, we've entered season two. And because it's 2021 and we've just left the infamous year of 2020, I'd like to give a shout out to our frontline workers, people who are looking after us in the healthcare sector, and also people who have continued assisting us with essential services while facing risk to themselves, or at least the perception of risk while we try to fight this pandemic as a society. Once again, I think that I am incredibly lucky to live in Australia, where we have the rule of law as something that is very important to all of us and is something that most citizens seem pretty keen to uphold. I want to express my gratitude to the people listening to this podcast and also the broader community for the wonderful role that they have played in keeping us all safe. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you found it interesting and maybe give a thought for how lucky we are and feel free to talk to other people about how fortunate we are to have such a strong, legitimate sense of the rule of law in Australia.